All right, we are going to just jump right in today, and I figured the best way to do that, I, uh, my buddy is visiting here from college, so right after, uh, I am going to be taking him and his wife and wonderful child back to the airport on my way. Uh, I will be reading uh, bumper stickers, uh, because that's what you do when you drive, and if you're a Christian, you especially have like very unique bumper stickers, because that's what we do as Christians. Uh, so maybe... Maybe bumper stickers, somewhat like this. Honk if you love Jesus. Text if you want to see him. <laughs> Perhaps uh, this one, are you following Jesus this close? And uh, one of my favorite, because we're really, like, this is, this is probably on, like, a t-shirt someplace. Uh, God answers an email. See what they did there? All right, anybody? All right. So, uh, <laughs> we'll be here all day. Uh, we are looking at one of the toughest topics in our binge series. Uh, I knew about six months ago, uh, I knew before we even did a survey in the community as to why people hate the church and hate God, uh, I knew what would be the number one reason. Uh, and I knew that a talk like this can't be reduced to a simple band-aid of a bumper sticker type thing. There is evil in this world. There is hardship in this world, and sometimes using a Christian cliche bumper sticker just doesn't fit as a band-aid to what is going on. In the survey, when we asked these questions, uh, people said, uh, one person said, uh, with so much BS in the world, I can't believe a loving God would allow what's happening. Another said, if there was a God and he allows his people to starve, die in war, and kill each other because of some fairy tale book, then he's an a-hole. Lastly, a person said, if God, God either exists and lets terrible things happen to innocent people, or he doesn't. And there were numerous other comments uh, made throughout the 55 or so responses that we got from this survey. I don't have all the answers. As I mapped this out six months ago and spent time this week preparing for this, I felt the weight of the world on my shoulders. How do I answer this, and how do I admit that I, as a man of faith, also struggle sometimes with these thoughts? And if I were to come in here and slap some bumper sticker as a Band-Aid onto it, am I giving people room to struggle? Or am I telling them by a mere bumper sticker type thing that it's not okay for you to struggle, just God is good all the time and just deal with it? I have 27 pages of notes if we want to have a philosophical debate about evil and good. I'll email it to you if you want to read it. It will put you right to sleep. But I don't think that's what we want either today. What do I, what do we, what does God say to the mom that has lost a child? To the brother that has lost a sibling, to a, a person that perhaps spent Valentine's Day alone for the very first time this past week. What do we say when, when perhaps there's not some pretty little bow at the end of a, of a sermon or a story, let's say. Let's, may I, plenty of pastors can bring up some story that has, a, uh, has struggle and, and, and deep hurt, and, but then there's this nice pretty story at the end to make it all okay. But what happens when that isn't the case? What would we say to the 17 moms, dads, spouses that got a phone call in Florida saying that their child was a shot? How do we process and how do we proceed? So I, I want to bring some perspective before we dig into Romans. Uh, John 16, Jesus is speaking and he says this. He says, I have said these things to you. That in me, you may have peace. In me, you may have peace. In the, in, the, in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You will have peace and you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is talking in the midst of this really long conversation that started when he invited his disciples together and said, let's have dinner. 
Let's have a meal together. And during that, he shows them immense love, incredible love when he washes their feet, which was meant for slaves back in the day because they were traveling around dirty roads and their feet were all sorts of disgusting. Feet are still disgusting, but they were really disgusting back then. He washes their feet. He shows them love. And and then he starts this long conversation that takes about two, three or so chapters. And in there, he's talking about how love others as I have loved you. He he says like, hey, this, I'm about to die. I'm going to suffer. but don't worry, the Holy Spirit's coming, and he's going to bring peace and comfort. He's going to be your comfort in the midst of all this hardship. And, and he talks about those things. And then in, this, in the middle of that conversation, he says this. Life is about to turn upside down, but have peace in me. Peace is yours if you want it. Take it, but you're going to have to find it in me, not other places. You take it from me. Why? Because I'm an overcoming Savior, and only in me can you find hope. Not peace as you envision it, not peace as you would dream it up. Peace that only I can provide. And he promises them trouble. He talks about two different realities, the reality of a peace and reality of trouble. And it's not the type of trouble that's, Slap a band-aid on it, rub some dirt on it, kid, and get on your way. This group of people that they're talking to will die for their faith. Some will be beheaded. Some will hang on their own crosses. Some will be ripped apart by animals. This isn't a boo-boo type trouble. It's a type of trouble that many of us walked into this room as a reality. And so Jesus does this. He, 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 and only the way that Jesus can, he, he talks about two overlapping realities, two realities where he's, where he's contrasting a world with peace, a, a, a state of peace, a peace that can be found in Jesus. But, but then uh, the overlapping reality of this is a troubled world, that this is a broken world, that there's chaos in this world. Two realities that somehow play together at the same time. They're, they're overlapping. And in the midst of two overlapping realities, the reality of peace, the reality of of trouble, the the reality that this world is falling apart, and the the reality that Christ is coming back and it will put all this back together again, in the midst of all of that, Jesus says, take heart. Not honk if you're taking heart, (laughs) but take heart in me. Roll up your sleeves. This is going to be some troubled times, and you're going to need to find some peace in me, what I have to offer. And here's, here's what we have at play when, when we walk in here in a moment like this. What, what, are we, what, what is our instinct? Our instinct could be to, to divorce these two overlapping realities from each other and go in one of two directions instead of dealing with them together at the same time. If we were to go the one way where this world is only trouble, then we, then we take life as it comes. And we say, well, this life sucks. It just is what it is. So I'm going to roll up my sleeves, get dirty, and just deal with it. Life happens to everybody. You just have to work through this life, and then when you die, you die and just deal with pain because this world is pain. There is no hope. There is no peace. And that doesn't sound like an overcoming Savior. That sounds like a miserable life. But then if you go to the other side of the spectrum to, to, to be the Christian that would say, well, Jesus said I'm going to have peace, that he is my comfort, and uh, while I reject trouble, I reject hardship, uh, I, this, this pain, I'm not going to take it. Oh, Satan, you're not today, Satan. <laughs> to live in the reality where there is no trouble or no pain is foolish. So somewhere in the middle, we find two overlapping realities that are altogether different, but, the, but at play at the same time. A reality that we as Christians, we have committed our lives to Jesus, where even in this moment, we're looking at what he's saying. He's about to go to the cross. I put my faith in the fact that Jesus went to the cross. There was death at play. He had a mom. He had siblings that, that knew him to die. And yet he rose again. Jesus is saying, yeah, there's peace and then there's trouble. And even as Christians, there's pain and trouble. He'll talk in other passages, the the scriptures will talk about, use rain as an analogy where rain falls on the just and the unjust. Rain falls on the Christian and the non-Christian. That we don't walk down the street in a rainy day, you know. It's only the non-Christians that are getting rained on. All the Christians, all, all, the, all the raindrops are just mysteriously falling around them. They never get wet because they have, they have Jesus. <laughs> Rain will fall on us all. 
But for the Christian, what sets us apart is that we have a future hope that makes this life just a little bit more bearable. When I went through a divorce with my, uh, with my family, when my mom and dad split early on, I was one of hundreds of teenagers in my school going through a divorce. What made me different than them? I had Jesus to walk right there beside me through the pain and through the hardships and to find him to be peace. I clang, clung to my Savior. That was the only thing I knew to do. And that made me different. Because they didn't have that. And so Jesus says, wait, I'm overcoming and I'm in the process of overcoming and I will overcome all, <laughs> all endings to that verb all at the same time. And you just need to wait and find peace while you're waiting. Have you ever told a kid to wait for something? <laughs> it's not fun. I, had, I have kids, and, and last night I told Brady that he would have ice cream at the end of dinner. I got some killer vanilla and Oreo ice cream. Uh, it's a thing for me. And I promised him some ice cream. And I said, buddy, I need to get my life together for a second. I can't get you ice cream right in this moment. Please wait. If you have kids, you know what happens next. The belly groan, where his life is over because he can't have ice cream in this very moment. That he has to patiently wait. And it's not just, yes, Daddy, I will wait. Okay. And, like, that has never happened. <laughs> it's groaning as we wait. And I'm not trying to liken God and future eternity to Oreo ice cream and whatnot. But it is true that while we wait as humans, there's an element of groaning as we have to wait patiently. So in Romans 8, what we'll look at today, Romans 8, 18 through 30, I think Paul offers some perspectives of hope in the midst of our groaning as we wait. He starts off the passage saying, and if children then heirs and heirs of God, that we have an, a future inheritance, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified, that future hope, that inheritance that we have as Christians, for one uh, well, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to re be revealed in us. Paul is writing this, and if there was a man that knew suffering, if there was a man that could relate to the people in this room uh, when it comes to suffering, it was Paul. There were times where he's, for, in the name of Jesus, Jesus, I'm doing your work, and I'm going to go into the city. They're not going to like it, and they're going to pick up rocks and throw them at me to the point where I, I am momentarily disabled. They actually think I'm dead. They drag me out of the city and they leave me there because in their mind, they just pelted me with rocks and I am dead. That pain, that suffering, he was beaten with sticks. He knew starvation. He would, he would be uh, shipwrecked out at sea and on, on islands and whatnot. If there was a man that knew suffering, he knew suffering. And he has the tenacity to say that as I think about future glory, the inheritance, the, 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 I am an heir of Christ. And when I think about the future, the hope that I have in that, what I'm experiencing now doesn't even compare to the goodness that's about to happen. So our thought for the morning is that hope, hope brings perspective to our Groaning. And I want to apply this in three different areas. I think Paul goes on to say that there is, there is hope for creation. So, so he, the passage continues that, that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected uh, to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free, creation will be set free from its bondage uh, to corruption and obtain freedom of glory of the children of God. For, the, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth into, unto now. That we can look at creation and know that this is a broken world. That this world is cursed. We have experienced, Sandy. I had to preach a few months ago after things happened down in Florida with a hurricane. After things happened in Houston with a hurricane. That it doesn't take a long time to, to read the news and realize that Things going on, tsunami warnings. Uh, my buddy up here got a tsunami warning. Jay, he lives down in Beach Haven West. He got a tsunami warning that it's coming. Lock up your house and head for the hills. There's a tsunami coming. Never really happened. Everything's good. But 
Life happens, and when life is happening, we understand that this is a broken, cursed world. And so Paul goes right there and says, eventually Christ is coming back, and that he's going to make new heavens, new earth, and that the curse on this world will be lifted, and I'm going to make all things new, and it will be perfect. But in the meantime, the world is groaning until it ceases. And in the broken world, it reminds me of a future hope that I have in Jesus for him to do just that. And the depth of the brokenness of this world and creation reminds me of the far greater joy that I will have in the midst of its brokenness. So your stupid eagles won the Super Bowl and had that parade and whatnot. And don't clap. That's stupid. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're all Christians. Ah, bah, bah, but, um, there's a, there is at least one Christian on the Patriots. And uh, I digress a lot. And... Uh, but to say that the Eagles are going to go back to the Super Bowl takes a little bit of hope, but not tons of hope because they were just there. To say that the Patriots are going to go back because they, they're always in the Super Bowl doesn't take, uh-huh, uh, doesn't take a ton of hope because it happens routinely. But my buddy is here from college, and uh, so I went to college out in Indiana. He lives in Indianapolis. You can pray for him. And, uh, and so because he cheers for a team that has the third overall draft pick in the upcoming draft because his team is awful, they had the slogan of suck for luck, if I remember correctly. And uh, he talks trash to me all the time. And so this is my moment where he doesn't have a mic and I do. Uh, and if you're going to ask him about any college stories, I've already made him promise that according to you guys, we both dressed in brown robes and we were monks in college, that there are no stories for him to tell. You will not get anything out of him. Uh, but he cheers for a team that is awful. Well, an awful team. And so to say that his team, the Colts, or that the Browns, let's say, the Browns went 0-16. Uh, they haven't won a game in a few years, it seems like. To say that they're going to win the Super Bowl, the depth of brokenness in their system, would you would have to apply a great deal of hope to say that that's going to happen. And so there is a broken world that we live, and we apply a great deal of hope. That Jesus is who he said he was, and that he's an overcoming Savior, and that he's coming back. And so as we patiently wait, we find hope of a future joy that we have in Jesus. Hope brings perspective to our groaning. There's hope for creation, and there's hope for the Christian. As it goes on, he, he says, and not only, for, not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. For the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You're not hoping that Pastor Jason will preach a sermon today because it's happening right now in your midst. There's nothing to hope for. We as Christians hope for what is coming, a future glory, and we groan inwardly as we wait for it. But we look at God in the midst of this, and we take what he has said as trustworthy, that in Jesus we will have a new body, that when I eat a whole gallon of Oreo ice cream, that one day I will have a new body that will be perfect despite what the Oreos will do to my body, that I, there will be a new heaven, that there will be a new earth, that with eternity there will be eternal rest, peace, Rest. How many of us would just die for some rest? We will have that for all of eternity with Jesus, with rewards, with an eternal family, where families are broken, whether it's through death or just families being broken, that we will have an eternal family with Jesus, an eternal home, that there will be no more sin, that there will be no more suffering, and that we will have an eternity ultimately with Jesus. We take that as trustworthy, and we live that out in the now. But we eagerly wait for that. Waiting is not fun. <laughs> uh, New York Times did a, uh, did a, did a study uh, a few years ago, and they used uh, the Houston airport as an example, uh, talking about how sometimes we need to change our perspective while we wait. And so they said this. They studied the Houston airport because they were getting tons and tons of complaints about uh, flying in, uh, parking the plane, if that's what you call it, and then going to the, to the baggage claim, and that, there were, that they were getting tons and tons of complaints how long it took between the plane and, and baggage. 
Uh, and so they did a lot of work. They saw the complaints, and they cut it down by two minutes to eight minutes worth of wait time, uh, which was the industry standard. And what blew their mind was that the complaints didn't go away. They stayed the exact same. People were still complaining, even though they cut it by two minutes and were within industry standard. And so they kind of threw a snowball's chance in hell at something. And, uh, and they said, well, here's what we're going to do. No longer will the terminal and baggage plane be, re be right next to each other. We're going to move baggage claim across the airport. <laughs> And uh, it was a six-minute walk. And so people would have to get off the plane, walk six minutes, get the baggage claim, and have to then wait two minutes to get their baggage. The wait time never changed. It, was, it stayed the exact same, but they just introduced a six-minute walk into the process. And they went from a ton of complaints to zero. <laughs> because people were now doing something while they were waiting. That changed their perspective. And so we as Christians, rain falls on us just like anybody else. But we have to change our perspective in the midst of it to find hope while we are waiting. So there's hope for the Christian. There's hope for creation. There's, there's hope through the Spirit. As our passage continues, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we don't know what to pray as we ought. Have we been there? But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches hearts. He knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, does that sound like an uncaring God? I, I don't necessarily think it does. To me, it sounds like God is looking at me, and he's groaning on my behalf. That I've said yes to relationship with Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes in and dwells with me. I have the very presence of God living within me, and, that it, and I have this promise that when life is getting tough, that the Spirit is groaning on, on my behalf. I groan, and I suffer with people I care about. That the Spirit is doing that for me in my weaknesses. Now, why would he let in weakness to prayer in, in, in all of this. I am weak when it comes to prayer in that I can't foresee the future. I have a finite mind, whereas the Spirit of God can see all things. It, it would be likened to a child praying, God, I, I want to eat all of the ice cream. Help dad, let Daddy allow me to eat all of the ice cream. That you and I as parents would say, that's a stupid prayer because you're going to get a tummy ache and you're going to make life hard ultimately for me. <laughs> But as God being infinite, he might look at some things that we're praying for knowing that you don't really want that. Garth Brooks said it, didn't he? <laughs> I hate country. But I know this song. Tyler, you love country. It's too bad. But in that, in that song, he, uh, thank God for unanswered prayers, he looks back at high school and he says, I was dating this, this girl and... I prayed that she would be my wife, and now he's sitting next to me, now his current wife, and he's like, thank God for unanswered prayers. My buddy won't tell you about the girls I dated in, in college. He promised me. And, uh, but if you asked him, I dated some girls. I probably at that moment at a Christian school prayed, God, this is going to be my wife. God, make this person my wife. And now I have Ava as my wife who deals with me, is able to deal with me, is able to walk through ministry with me. And I look at what God provided for me, and I'm like, thank God for unanswered prayers because I couldn't see the future. And so God in our weaknesses, he, he sends his spirit to live inside of us and groan on our behalf. The second is that sometimes we don't know what is best. We can't foresee the outcome, but also we don't always know what is best. And so we have to, like Jesus, drop to our knees with deep, deep trust sometimes and say, God, if you can take this cupcake, take it. Let your will be done. God knew the outcome. Jesus knew, it. Jesus knew what it would bring, but for us sometimes... We have to be different in that. We have to go before God and say, God, I trust you. I'm praying this, but I'm going to trust that you know what is best. And so we go to him with this deep, deep trust, and then Paul has the tenacity to say, and God works things out for good. Have you ever said that to somebody in the midst of losing a loved one? Losing a job, their, a house being turned upside down, perhaps a house fire, that we as Christians sometimes just want to say, well, God works things out for good. Yes, he does. 
But in our struggle, do we really want to hear that? Or do we want to kind of look at the person and be like, yes, I know that, but could you give me a day or two to get there? <laughs> we have to keep in mind this, this context that he's talking about good in this already not yet tension. That God can see the future. That God can work out things for good. Yes, he can. And it can give me hope for a better tomorrow. But it doesn't always mean that I'm going to get what I want because God isn't some genie. That sometimes I have to say, God, your will be done. Even as I might be one of those parents that got a phone call about a kid that was shot in a school. And you're going to fall to your knees at a loss of words. What do I say? What, what could I even pray but God, why, why, why? And you drop to your knees in tears. But for the Christian, there is this unique way where the Spirit of God will groan on our behalf, where we can go to a time of prayer, sometimes wordless prayer, where as he's groaning on our behalf, we're able to rise from that wordless prayer, refreshed and renewed as the Spirit is working on our behalf. Even in the midst of the darkest of times, we're able to find peace in that. Check out this video from The Good Hughes. Hi guys, my name is Jillian Goodhue and this is a little bit of my story. In October of 2014, my dad was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. In April the next year, six months later, he passed away a month before his 59th birthday. When we first heard the news, my gut instinct was denial. My dad was always one of those people who was never sick. He was probably Superman. He would patch up wounds with duct tape and a napkin and once refused to go to the uh, hospital when he had a clearly broken leg. So obviously my dad could not be sick. The doctors were wrong. When it was confirmed and we knew it was true, it almost felt like a betrayal. The first thing we did was we prayed. And then we prayed some more and then we called some people and texted some people and got some more people to pray. At the most, we had people praying on three separate continents. We prayed for healing. We prayed for wisdom. We prayed for peace. We prayed. And we asked God what he wanted us to do. Uh, and he answered. He told us to move to New Jersey. And it was mind-boggling. I always said I would never move back to New Jersey. And then, then here I was. So we asked, are you sure, God, do you really want us in New Jersey? And, well, he said yes. So we left. We left our house. We left our two good jobs. We had a new baby boy. Uh, he came with us. We had an incredible church. Uh, we left it behind and came up here. But I don't really regret any of that. Uh, my dad got to see our son's first steps and hear his first words. He got to be a part even for a little bit of his life and we got to be there for him we were there when they found out the radiation had stopped working and there were no treatments and hospice was the only answer we were there as the pain become became too unbearable for him we were there also to show the hope found in jesus and we were there afterwards as my mom had to find her way through life on her own for the first time ever so the one word that I often say during this time that I had was peace. In Philippians, there's a verse that says, when you pray and ask for it, you'll have a peace that transcends understanding. And that's what this was. This wasn't logical. I do logic. I'm an engineer. I love logic. This wasn't that. This was a peace that could only come from God. So from the ashes, we've seen beauty. Uh, my mom and my sister both started attending church and were baptized. Uh, these people who used to call us crazy Christians and holy rollers now became <laughs> that themselves. And we're seeing real life change. I'm not saying this wasn't sad, this didn't hurt. It, it was some of the hardest times of my life. But I had Jesus and that was the difference. Although my father died, I still had my heavenly father. Uh, there's a verse we learned when we taught Sunday school at our old church, which everyone should volunteer at Well Kids because you also learn memory verses. And it's a verse in John, and it's 1633, and it's in this world, you will have trouble. This is G 
Jesus talking. He's not telling you you might have trouble or, you know, no, you trust in me, the troubled all God. No, he's telling you you will have trouble. But he doesn't leave us there. The next word is a but. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. He doesn't leave us with our trouble. He overcame sickness. He overcame death. He overcame all that. And we can trust in him and have that peace. So thank you guys for listening. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Daniel, her uh, husband, uh, can contest that I had not told her that we were going to be talking about John 16:33, and, uh, and so that was really unique when I when I watched that and just the powerful statement of peace in the midst of stage four cancer. The passage that we look at the section concludes by saying, "For those whom uh, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that in order that he might be the firstborn uh, among many brothers." And those he predestined, he also called. And those he, whom he called, he, he also justified. And, and those he justified, he also glorified. And so there is hope for us in, in the midst of our groaning. Hope brings perspective. There is hope for creation. There is hope for the Christian. There is hope through the Spirit of God. And for you and I, there is that hope comes because there is a future glory waiting for us that we find ultimate hope as we wait eagerly for it as Christians where we will stand glorified with Jesus. We will stand there praising him for all of eternity. And so my life is not one of despair. My life is one of as hope as that process has already begun. And I know that there are some still in this room, whether it's a grandparent, whether it's a child, whether... Whether it's a house that has caught on fire or a pipe that has burst. That you're looking and saying, well, he's answered others' prayers. Put a pretty little bow on it, but what about mine? You're telling me that there's hope and no despair. You're saying, take heart. You're putting a Christian bumper sticker on it. Well, to literal hell with you, Jason. And I understand that in the midst of my life, that it might be easy for me to throw some Christian bumper sticker out there. But I also live with the reality, and I thought about this all week long, that I am not eternal. My wife is not eternal. And my kids are not eternal. And that there is a very high likelihood that someday I will get on YouTube Search binge series and find this sermon, whether it's days, weeks, or years from now, and I will have to watch this very sermon. Trying to get my own perspective. And I will have to remind myself that if I'm searching for happiness and circumstances, then my life will be a roller coaster for the rest of the rest of my time. But if thy happiness is found on an eternal Jesus, then that will transcend to eternal joy. Consistent joy, even in the midst of the most challenging of circumstances. I will need to remind myself to cling to the cross. And that has to start now when things might be good. And not wait till time, rough waters. Hebrews says, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. My, my buddy Jay was so nice to rip this off his boat and bring me an anchor. Well, I think his son dragged it to me, but whatever. And here we are in the midst of rough waters for some of us, but some of us in good waters and Jesus, or the author of Hebrews, is looking at Jesus as an anchor for the soul. Whether it's in rough waters or good waters, the anchor for the soul remains the same. Because in Jesus, we have direct access to God. That we no longer have to go to some priest or some saint or some whatever. That we go directly to God himself and find peace. That when he died on the cross, at that moment, the veil in the temple was torn, giving us direct access to God. And in him, we find hope in good waters and bad waters. Jesus has promised there's going to be troubled waters. Hang on to me. 
And so those in this room that are currently hanging on to Jesus in the midst of rough waters, you remind me that I need to do this now. You give me encouragement that when life happens to me, because it is a promise that it will happen to me, there is an anchor for my soul that I can cling to. It's why Jeremy Camp, a, a Christian artist who, who lost his wife at 22 years old of cancer, it's why his, his family and her family, in the moment she died, circled her bed and started singing songs of praise over her life. Like, how is that possible? I don't get it. But I look at the Langworthys who have troubles with their own parents. I, I look at the Sanger family. I look at the Raj family who came home and now their house is being, is being gutted. I look at members of our worship team struggling through some stuff. And you give me hope as I watch you cling to the anchor of your soul in Jesus Christ. You are different than the other people that are going through very similar things because you have Jesus and you show me that it's possible to have hope in the midst of challenging times. And so for me, it is a decision, maybe in good waters, to drop anchor and hang on because troubled waters are coming. And so I will choose to hang on now and fix my perspective now before troubling times come. I write an email to my kids on a weekly basis Part of the reason I do it is because I know that someday I'm going to give them this email, or Ava will, and, uh, and someday when they're teenagers, uh, they'll look back on some things that we were working through. One of my motivations to doing this is knowing that when they're teenagers, Daddy might not be around. And so I want them to read things from me if, if and when life is to hit the fan. And so this is one of the things I wrote in 2013. Reagan wasn't even a thought. <laughs> I said, hey, guys, I just felt like I needed to write the family. It's been a while. God has been showing me a lot in his scriptures. I have been studying the book of Revelation and, and the book of Job. I don't know what, my, what life has for me. I don't know how long I will be on this earth. Each day is a blessing. God has been teaching me through his word, and, and, and I know that he is in complete control. He defines good. What I might see as a bad situation, God may very well see as good. And he is right and I am not. I have been overwhelmed with the need to be rooted in Christ. Storms of life are going to come. We cannot get around them. The person that is deeply rooted in Christ, that seeks him for strength, is able to navigate through the hard times because they seek and turn to God. A tree with deep roots is able to survive the times of famine and little rain. Trees with shallow roots... Though they can't get the needed nutrients, and so when the adverse happens, they die. And so to my family, I say to you, be rooted in Christ. Know your God, and in knowing your God, you will be able to withstand the lies of Satan. And I wrote that knowing that troubling times could come for my kids, that they could read that knowing that Daddy is no longer around. And I wanted them to know from my mouth, no matter, no matter what comes my way, that God is good. And that you better be rooted in Jesus Christ to handle all of what life is bringing. And so I want them to have the encouragement to stand strong and to be anchored in Jesus and to make their perspective that of the cross. Because if our perspective as we're clinging to Jesus is that of the cross, then it's going to give me hope. It's going to fix my perspective in the midst of struggles. If my anchor for the soul is Jesus Christ and my perspective is through the cross, then when troubles come and troubles are going to come, then here's what the enemy would love to shout at each one of you. God doesn't really love you. God is, God is a God of hate. God is an a-hole. But when I look at the cross, the cross shouts, no, he's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of forgiveness. And he brings a future hope that I'm going to cling to. The cross screams louder than when the enemy's lies. The cross reminds me that God can take what is bad and use it for eternal good. That he's painting a much bigger canvas than the sliver of my life. That if you were to look, if, if, if eternity or if history was to end on Good Friday, then no one's calling it good. Mary, as she sat on the, at the foot of the cross watching her son die. There's no way she would say that's Good Friday. But Sunday's coming. Where he rises from the grave and offers us life. And so now, years removed, thousands of years removed, we look at good.
Good Friday as good because we know the life that we have in Jesus, that God is painting a much bigger canvas as he is an eternal God. And I have to look at it from his perspective, although I may not always get it. The cross reminds me as I anchor in that he died for the church. That's what makes you and I different as Christians. You probably have friends that are going through similar struggles as you, perhaps. What will make you different than your unbelieving friend is that perhaps what the church ought to be doing, coming alongside you, not with pity, but with compassion, and join you in your suffering to provide you that God-given hope in the midst of it so that through a life group you're going to say, I'm struggling, I have some tough doctor's appointments. Let us watch your kids and make that a little bit easier. Through a life group or or, or through this church, maybe there's financial struggles. And it's, it's the church that's the difference maker. It's a gift from God as we come alongside each other and be generous to one another in the midst of the struggles. The cross reminds me that I'm not in this alone. That troubling times happen to us all, but I'm not in this alone. And the cross shows me as I anchor in that this life, this troubled life is the closest to hell. That I as a Christian will ever get. I as a Christian. This is a troubled life. But I take hope in that future glory. That future with Jesus. That peace with Jesus. And I know that in eternity there is perfection. And that this troubled world is the closest to hell that I will ever get. And so hang on. Jesus is coming. He's an overcoming king. Take heart in that. But it reminds me also that for the non-Christian. This is the best life we'll ever get. For the non-Christian, this is the best life we'll ever get. And so it is my joy as a man of God to do whatever I can to give you a taste of heaven in the midst of these hard times. To say that there is something better. There is something more. And so, so I, I hang out at a coffee shop sometimes. I say it. I talk about it a lot. And there was a day where I was hanging out there, and I had my, my worship music on. I'm working on, on a sermon, and, uh, and there were some high school kids that came in from south, and there was this girl that was studying for, like, cramming for a test, and, and she cared a lot about this test. We, her and I would not have been friends in high school. Uh, she was obviously not D's get degrees because she was, like, praying, like, God, what if I get a B? And I'm like, I, I have prayed for B's. And, uh, and so it's like she's, she's stressing out. And, and so well, at one point, I'm listening to my worship music, and all of a sudden, she's like, why does God effing hate me? I was like, that's not what they're singing at Hillsong. Like, that, that is not worship music. And, uh, and so I was like, I can't just sit here. I'm, I'm a pastor, and I know that that's not true of God. And so I, I went back and got, and got a brownie and just grabbed a God loves you card, and so do we. And I just slipped it on her table and, and just said, here, here's a brownie. Maybe, maybe God doesn't hate you. And then I walked away, like, might drop that trash and just <laughs> peaced out. And, uh, and uh, did they get it? I don't know. But, but they did. All the friends, as, as she left, she looked back and said, sir, you're a good soul. We need more people like you on this planet. I was like, you should read the card. And, uh, <laughs> and so that was weird. But we do that often there. And there has been a time when we bought a nice lady a cup of coffee, and she came back and said, you don't know this, but my good friend of mine died. And I woke up not knowing if God was real, and you just show me that God is love through a cup of coffee. And so we, that's my challenge to us today is to pray, share, and to love. That we would, maybe, maybe we're in the moment of wordless prayer where we're dropping to our knees not knowing what to pray, but just drop to your knees in prayer and just have no words and say, God, groan on my behalf. Or maybe it's allowing others to pray with you. Perhaps it's sharing, getting into a life group. Perhaps this week, your life groups aren't going to get to any questions because you're going to start off and be like, well, the sermon hit this, and I just need to talk. Talk. Share and allow people to join in with you as we want to love one another. Allow us to do child care. Allow us to, to help financially. Allow us to bear the burden with you. Because you're not meant to do this alone. You have the Spirit of God and the church behind you. Allow us to help. Pray, share, and love. So I don't have all the answers. I have a book that I'd like to give to you by Katie Davis Major. She wrote a book called Daring to Hope. She's a missionary in Uganda. She sees death all the time. And, and that's one of the things that she talks about in her book. 
that I've been listening to. I don't read books. I listen to books. And uh, so as I've been listening to this, she, she says, I don't have all the answers. In fact, as I draw closer to Jesus, I have more questions <laughs> that I don't have answers for. But here's, in, 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 in uncertainty, in, in, in answers that I, or in questions I don't necessarily have answers for, here's what I do have, a deeper relationship with Jesus that's helping me get through the darkest of times in Uganda. And so perhaps it's not having all the answers. Perhaps it's drawing closer to Jesus and in a deep intimacy with Jesus saying, Thy will be done even when I don't get it. And there are some that would look at this perspective and say, Weak. You're weak. You're foolish. That your faith is just a crutch. I look at a lady named Jamie Donnelly and I don't see weakness in her faith. She's a, she's a woman that prayed for a child, begged for a child, and, and eventually had a child. And uh, three days in, her child died in her arms. And she wrote a letter that, that represents somebody that's clinging to Jesus as the anchor of her soul. And she gave me permission to read this. She was here in the first, uh, first hour. She says, uh, she says this in her letter to her child that was read at his, uh, his funeral. He says, your father and I began our first date at a small Greek restaurant in Kenmore, New York. Uh, we spoke about common interests and future goals, and uh, that, that is where you were first mentioned. We both had a deep desire for a child one day. Three dates into our relationship, we both simultaneously said, I have two things I want to say. I love you and will you marry me one day? They quoted Frozen before Frozen was a movie. <laughs> During my pregnancy, I would often wonder what it would be like one day to have you come home and tell me that you found your forever love. Two years later, as happily newlyweds, we were driving around to our first home in central Jersey. Uh, and, and you see, your mom enjoys playing uh, what we dub as the name game, thinking of interesting names that people may be called. And that is when I brought up my favorite boy's name, your name, Xavier. Your father liked it, and I assumed it was after St. Francis Xavier, but no, I replied. I got it from the signature on the butt of my Cabbage Patch doll. And that's a true story. The next few years, we would continue to work on building up towards our ultimate goal of having you. We traveled, we built our careers, and eventually purchased our home, a sweet little ranch style that we thought would be the safest structure for raising a festy child. I would often imagine you rolling around in your walker and giving you nightly baths. Five years into our marriage, you would embark on a long journey that required us to experience every, uh, every facet of what it meant to be hopeful and never give up on faith. Three years and 36 months it took to conceive you. Easter weekend of this year was special because we saw... Of the word pregnant appear across the test. During my pregnancy, the doctors would inform us of some complications and suggested the unthinkable. I turned to your father and I said, I don't care if I only have three minutes, three hours, or three days, that you will be born alive and you are ours. I couldn't have asked for a more joyous delivery. The room was filled with happiness, excitement, laughter, and smiles. You had beautiful color. It, it was a, you were festy and a healthy baby. The prognosis was that you were going to come home by Thanksgiving. You are proof that prayers are answered and miracles do happen. I was planning on framing this, this scripture in your nursery, 1 Samuel 1.27. A child, uh, I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. See, I could never be angry at God like so many parents in our situation tend to be because he answered our prayers. We just didn't know that our time with you would be so brief. And the scripture that follows, 1 Samuel 1.28 goes, Now I am giving him to the Lord, and that he will belong to the Lord his whole life. So in closing, my precious, beautiful son, I simply state four words that I will never hear you speak. So I will say them for you and to you. I love you, Mom. I spoke to her this week because I, I knew of the story and I knew that I couldn't have a talk like this with understanding some sort of perspective. And so she was gracious enough in, in sharing this with me and I was just wrecked. And she would say, Jason, like, 
I don't have the same struggle that other parents do. Like parents go, go to bed every night wondering where is their child or when is my child coming home. I don't wonder where my child is. I, I know my child is in the arms of Jesus. And she, she takes comfort in that. And she's hanging on to Jesus as the anchor of her soul. She is one of many people that has lost a child. But what makes her different is that she has Jesus as the anchor for her soul. And she's able to find hope in the midst of that. So where others would look at that as weakness, I look at her as strength, God-given strength. And it reminds me that I would rather be on the side of the hopeful than the hopeless. Check out this story, and then we'll sing a song, not together, but I just want you to hear this song, another, another perspective. We were on tour all last summer, and my daughter is almost three, and my husband and I had really started talking through extending our family. Um, having another baby and so we um, started trying last summer and I got pregnant in July the first appointment we had there was a flutter of a heartbeat and my doctor said come back in a week and then we'll know like next week by then we'll know if this is if this baby you know is healthy or not desperate of a place like I mean I literally would get on my knees to try to pray and it was almost like my I couldn't I lost the ability to speak and all I could really say was that will be done and then in different you know my day-to-day like reading the Bible or my devotionals like the morning of my next appointment it was on those those verses the Lord's Prayer in Matthew and it was in that moment I felt God go and speak to my heart like this isn't going to end how you want it to but my plans are for you you know thy will be done there's just um a lot of a lot of just that repetition of that those verses hearing those you know hearing someone talk about those verses reading those verses it just kind of kept coming up not to mention just what I was praying continually for that week leading up to that next appointment. In the midst of a huge, amazing summer tour, you know, and what we thought was gonna be, you know, another baby to bring home, just wasn't, that wasn't the plan. And I think that, you know, is, one of the things that has been such a huge lesson for me to learn in writing this song, sharing this story, is that I have already seen so much good and so much positive come from what I went through. Obviously, it is not the end to the story that I wanted about this chapter in our life, but the beauty that has risen from the ashes and the, and the beauty that has come in a form that I wasn't expecting it to, in the form of this song, in the form of stories and connections with fans and with people all over the world already. Um, That has just been the biggest blessing and I will forever be grateful for every step of this journey because of that. 